Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Shipshape Podcast, where we navigate the marine world, its stories, trends, and voices. In today's episode, we're turning our compass towards marine insurance, a field often overlooked but crucial to the maritime sector. Our guest, Chris Coleman, hails from Broward County and has made significant strides at oversee commercial marine insurance and is the president of Young Professionals in Yachting USA. Beyond his professional endeavors, Chris is deeply involved in trade associations, advocating for industry standards and best practices. Furthermore, he's passionate about nurturing the next generation, actively supporting youth development initiatives within the marine community. Join us as we navigate these waters with Chris. Your two co-hosts today are Merle Strett. I'm a liveboard on a Tashing Toshiba 36 in Boston and T. Hey guys, welcome to the Shipshape Podcast. This is Talha Bhatti. I'm aboard my powerboat in Virginia, and we have Chris on the show with us, and we're going to learn all about the intricacies of insurance today and uh, the youth development programs he is involved in. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So where are you recording this from? I am recording this from lovely Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in the crow's nest at the Bahia Mar Yachting Center. Uh, right outside my window, they are building the world's largest in-water boat show, the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, which kicks off next week. So it's a uh, it's a bit of a construction war zone here, but I think I've found a nice quiet space for us. So obviously a, a trend in a lot of the people that we interview is this zigzag experience to actually get into the industry. So could you tell us kind of the path you took and how did you end up here in the first place? Absolutely. So... It's funny, I am actually one of the few uh, Fort Lauderdale natives, uh, born and raised here in Broward County, but never really was truly immersed in that that yachting lifestyle that's so pervasive through the South Florida region. I grew up in North Georgia on Lake Lanier, uh, lake boats, wakeboarding, and then slowly found myself wanting to to gravitate back towards my roots back towards home and and so it's been a uh, it's been a full circle but i've always been uh land-based if you will i haven't been a true yachty in the in the truest sense of the word but as far as you know that path back here towards my career what's really surprising is is you know i went to school for aerospace engineering at university of florida I eventually transitioned towards a more interpersonal career path and uh, was a radio DJ, which was in and of Sweet. itself its own experience. But then we, you know, I, I found myself again wanting to get back towards home, back towards the South, and found that there's a huge niche down here. Obviously, with Fort Lauderdale being the ship repair capital of the world, I found that there's a ton of opportunity there and nobody really wanting to do it from an insurance perspective. And, and insurance kind of spoke to me 
Uh, my parents always said that I should have been an attorney, but what's the next best thing that doesn't require hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans? It's insurance, right? So someone's got to do it. Someone's got to be the person to uh, helicopter parent for their clients. And what better opportunity than for me to jump in and, and uh, make the most of that? So, so tell us more about that. What sort of uh, insurance are you involved in? Is it more commercial? Is it more recreational? So our agency, believe it or not, was founded in San Diego and was a yachting insurance only space. Super highly concentrated. There's 20,000 sailboats off the coast of California and our company, that's all they did. Fast forward to 2017 and I was at the infancy of, of my career jumping from one agency to another trying to find a good home the yacht insurance division decided that they wanted to expand and look into rounding out our available services that we could provide to the yachting community. And with my specialization being primarily on the commercial space, I could step right in and bridge that gap. So I actually work on both sides of the aisle. Um, I insure high performance center consoles. I insure foreign manufacturers uh, for their inventory. So I ensure both the the end user, the boat owner, as well as the dealer, the manufacturer, and, and the artisans that that provide the very necessary services that our industry requires on a daily basis. In a lot of these interviews, sometimes um, when we talk to guests, it almost seems like they showed up and it just happened. But can you tell us a little bit more about what was it like to actually break into the industry? What were the struggles? What type of tips would you give someone trying to break in? Yeah, so that's that's really a funny story. Much like my uh, my path through college, I did, like many others, stumble into this. I was kind of a ship without a rudder when I moved back to South Florida and got into bartending on the beach, uh, working at a nicer upscale restaurant in one of the on one of the hotels here, and you know was just toiling away and met the CMO of a software company, no less, and. He said, you know, why are you doing this? You've got, you know, you're clearly good at sales. Why don't you get, you know, come work for me. We'll, we'll get you set up and get into an inside sales role. I said, well, I got nothing else to do. It's, you know, bartending or that. And coincidentally, they shared an office building with a condo association, homeowners association, insurance agency that specialized in habitational insurance. And those guys pestered me over and over. You're not a nerd. You should come work with us. We're cool. I'm like, you work in insurance. You are also a nerd. Um, and in the most, you know, in the most polite way possible. But it was, it was kind of like a, I wouldn't call it a fraternity, but they were very much, there was some good camaraderie. And, and so I ended up transitioning over to their agency. And, and that was where I got my, my start in insurance. And uh, over the course of about a year, year and a half, I kept prodding our, our manager to say, why don't we go after yachting? Why don't we go after marine risks? We are in the Mecca of this for the United States. There's no reason to go and fight a thousand other agents over one account when we could go into a, a segment where there's five guys I have to compete against. There's less sharks in the water, which means there's a higher chance of success. And that agency, for whatever reason, said, that sounds great, but we're not going to help you. And so that was a real discouraging setback for me. And, and that's what sent me off trying to see if there were other agencies that actually did what I was hoping to do is specialize in this super cool industry that I just wanted to get more 
accustomed to, more more acclimated to, because it is literally everywhere here. We have more dockage space and more seawall per mile than almost anywhere else in the United States. And and so clearly there's opportunity there. And so I found another agency that did it and they got acquired. And I went from what I thought was going to be a family-owned business to very, very heavily corporate, very quick. And that was a struggle for me. Believe it or not, shortly after joining Young Professionals and Yachting, I cross paths with my now current boss and he was a past president of young professionals and yachting and you know we hit it off and 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 i made that switch about eight months later it was quite a uh, it was quite a long interview process but it was obviously clearly worth it as as we have continued to grow and this family business has also been acquired since but with some time to get ready for it and it's been a great ride so far Sweet. So I definitely want to dig deeper into the young professionals and yachting in just a bit, but just circling back a little, how important is sales to the insurance industry? So sales is, it's a funny, I don't like to think of what we do as sales. Um, what we do is risk consultation and we take a very interpersonal approach to this and, and insurance, you've got to have, there's got to be some emotional tie to it in my opinion. If you're so far removed from your client, you sometimes cannot see the forest through the trees. And and what I mean by that is what's important to them, you may not see. And their concerns are for their small business or their medium-sized business or their enterprise-sized business is, you know, there's certain risks that they don't feel comfortable with that you have to help them wrap their hands around. And by not being engaged and taking a vested interest in their success you can you can miss those very easy touch points so it's not it's not a transaction to me it's not just selling a piece of paper or a digital piece of paper in in the current state of the world it's a relationship our job is to maintain a relationship and to provide peace of mind and guidance from a risk perspective well it's certainly more than a relationship as the marine insurance industry is always constantly evolving there's so many new things that are coming along and changes so can you talk about how exactly you stay abreast of all of these changes and um what some of the trends that you're noticing in the industry are certainly and and one of the big things that i've learned there's nothing that will ever trump education being educated, that's the quickest way to catch up to your peers if you are younger and or newer to your industry to in, in any work, in any aspect of this, not just insurance. It could be welding, it could be canvas, it could be yacht brokerage. The fastest way to to come up to the median or to the the industry average and create yourself a little bubble that that sets you apart from your peers is to get that education, get that competency as quickly as you can to bridge that that gap of time. Because experience is, is something that you gain over time, but education can, can shorten that gap. So what I have done and what I did from the very jump was I started pursuing continuing education and, and designations that are unique and specific to my line of work. You can go and there's a thousand one acronyms, it feels like, for every every type of insurance that exists. You've got your associates in risk management, you've got your CPCU, and, and what I had gone and pursued was the CMIP, which is a Certified Marine Insurance Professional designation, and all that coursework 
focuses on is the various aspects of marine insurance, both recreational and commercial. And that helps really speed things up, not to put a a big neon sign for, for that designation or anything else. But for me personally, it helped a lot. And it helped me where I might have had questions kind of have those aha moments. You see that light bulb just go off in your head and you go, oh, that's why. And so that's where I find from a young professional or younger professional, I guess, at this point. And, you know, if I were to ever give anybody advice, it would be to pursue knowledge. That knowledge is absolutely going to be integral to being able to talk shop with your peers, with your superiors, and and to help distinguish or differentiate yourself from your competitors. Obviously, uh, young professionals in yachting really does kind of solve that type of um, issue that's coming up, especially the, the knowledge and the community, because network is so important within maritime to you know really grow. So can you talk about young professionals in yachting, what exactly it is, where does it fit into the larger scheme of the industry, maybe it's global network? Absolutely. So to give a bit of a backstory, Young Professionals in Yachting was founded here in Fort Lauderdale, and it was 15 years ago, almost to the day. So we've been around for 15 years. Our chapter here in the United States is the founding chapter, and it started out with about 13, I think, 13 members. That was it. And it has since expanded to eight countries. We have over a thousand members worldwide. And our chapter here in the United States continues to grow at about a 10% clip year over year since covid Um, We're approaching about 154 members. And the whole premise behind what we do is to create an opportunity for people to to grow professionally and personally in their careers here in the marine industry on the land side of things. So no crew, no captains, but to grow and mature and build your network in what's considered an otherwise exclusive and difficult to enter industry. Um, The yachting industry has the reputation of being a bit unattainable and, and and a bit standoffish and given the age gaps that are pervasive through every industry in the world right now i mean you look at the banking system and you've got peers that are 20 years apart you look at the insurance industry and most of my peers are about to retire and i'm in my mid-30s i mean there is a massive gap and and so what we found is that translates across all aspects of the yachting industry and while you're in your 20s and 30s and you want to build a network, your peers that are in their 50s and 60s with family and potentially grandchildren, they're not going to want to go to happy hour with you. They're not going to build this this rapport and this relationship. And, and, and what inevitably happens by having this gap is there's no knowledge transference. And so when these people retire, those absolutely integral pieces of knowledge on how to do things the right way, how to, you know, what not to do, the do's and don'ts of our industry get lost to time. And so Young Professionals in Yachting has helped create a place where some of that can continue to occur and we can continue to cultivate and grow to make sure that this industry is sustainable for decades to come. It's not about us right now. It's about everybody who follows us. And we just recently launched our eighth chapter, I believe, Italy, at the Monaco Yacht Show at the beginning of this month uh, in October. And we're looking to launch another chapter next year. And we're going to have our second inaugural international trip next year, possibly in Italy, possibly in Greece. But the opportunity here is is really to continue to cultivate that 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 hunger, that appetite to 
to build and to to develop your career and and to also bridge gaps across the pond. You know, just because we do things a certain way in the United States doesn't mean that's necessarily the best business practice. So those business practices are able to be shared across cultures um, because the culture at the Germany chapter is very different than the culture at the at the the Netherlands chapter, which is different than the Turkey chapter, which we launched last year. It so it's it creates. A sense of community that's farther reaching than what was ever intended here in Fort Lauderdale. It's fascinating, and I'm so happy to be a, the current steward of our chapter and know that there's there's so much more to come. But I've you know I've only got my two years to make it happen, so we'll do the best we can. Mm, so I want to dig a little deeper there. As the president for Young Professionals in the USA, what initiatives or programs are you most proud of, and what do you hope to achieve in the future? One of the things that I've been really, really excited to do was, uh, as president, we we have the opportunity to create habits and to create trends that we we want to see carry forward after our tenure is over. And one of those things that I have implemented was a a charity of choice. Um, what we had done, and it started kind of when I was vice president. This is, this was a passion project of mine was to get involved with. A nonprofit down in the Keys called Coral Restoration Foundation. Um, if you've ever done research on the the impacts of coral and and fish and wildlife and 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 our food chain, it's huge. And with the changing of ocean temperatures and and the impacts that that can have, their work is is absolutely integral uh, to to long term sustainability of you know our ecosystem in the oceans. And so I had really pushed hard to get our chapter to to work with them on an annual basis. And so we had selected them to be our charity of choice. And we had actually about a dozen or so of our members volunteer to go dive and plant coral down at their coral farms down in the Keys of, of uh, Florida. And that was just one step. This year, we've partnered with the Sea Keepers Society um, and their efforts around the world uh, and it's been it's been really great. They're having their twenty uh, five year anniversary gala here at the boat show next week, and and we're helping volunteer to help support them with that. Um, but really, just finding an opportunity for our chapter to have a voice. In years past, we kind of just picked a charity event to do, and and moving forward, I, we've made it to where the membership votes on that. What, who do you guys want to support this year? And 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 really provide an opportunity for, for our members' voice to be heard. And and so we have a long-term relationship with the charity year over year. And it, and it, and it, ch- it can change every year. It could be the same one. Thus far, we haven't picked the same charity twice. Uh, but we've only been doing this for, for two years. So that's understandable. But that's that's been a, one of the initiatives. Another is trying to bridge the gaps with the other marine industry associations. There's always been a very cordial arrangement between the various local associations here, but really trying to get our chapters to cross network. And so as recently as two nights ago, we hosted with the International Superyacht Society, we co-hosted an event at the Inner Miami soccer game, their last home game of the season. We rented out the terrace so that our members could enjoy a soccer game here in South Florida. Unfortunately, Messi was not there to some to some people's disappointment. But we uh, it was a great opportunity to to not only kind of kick off 
the boat show next week, which is the Catalina wine mixer of boat shows here in the States. Um, but to rekindle some relationships and possibly, you know, um, foster some new ones. Um, so from my perspective as, as president, what I've really tried to do is continue our outreach. Outreach has been kind of the, the focal point of, I guess, circling back and making a summarization of everything that I've tried to accomplish in my tenure. Ahoy, investors! Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape, the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. So outside of the young professionals in Yanni, you're also associated with the Marine Industries Association of South Florida, which frankly is kind of a role model for really trying to drive engagement with youth. And we've had Megan Piggott on in the past, we did an interview with her, but can you talk about kind of your association with them, you know, the plywood regatta, how youth development is being, you know, pushed? Yeah, they're, they have done, they have been such a, such a great beacon to our industry. And I think nationwide to showcase what kind of an impact a trades association can really have for, for good. Um, it's not just about lobbying. It's not just about what can I do for me or for my members. They've they've gone and been very selfless in in creating this opportunity for middle school and high school and trade school students to get more engaged and more interested in in what it means to be in the yachting industry. And so. The plywood regatta has been going on for almost 30 years now, uh, and I've been the co-chair for the past two. We did a cardboard regatta uh, post-COVID, which was very comical, um, as I'm sure you can picture. Cardboard and water don't always get along. That was uh, that was our creative solution for one year, but it allows these students to create teams and design a boat and race it and build teamwork uh, skills and build mechanical skills and, and, and using their hands and, and learning what the planning process looks like and setting aside time outside of just going to school and, you know, throwing the football or kicking the soccer ball after school. It, it provides them a clear path to seeing what they're learning and how it can be applied. And so the plywood regatta has been going on for much longer than I've been in this industry and will hopefully carry on well past. And it's been enlightening to see how much these kids love it and how many of them stick around as a result and and where I, where that's most prevalent is in the apprenticeship program that that the MISF had set up and you see some of these kids go straight from their their magnet school straight into the apprenticeship program and the only reason they would have even thought to do that is the plywood regatta so i find a lot of satisfaction in volunteering for that i've been the mc now for one year it's so much fun. It's hilarious. The kids get an absolute kick out of it. And it and it does something that, you know, while it's a lot of effort and a lot of, bl of blood, sweat, and tears, it keeps this industry going. And, and the Marine Industry Association of South Florida has, you know, kept me engaged 
not as a YPY member, but as just an MISF member, you know, this past spring, I went up with, as you know, at their pleasure, they allowed me to join them to go to the American Voting Congress to lobby Congress for, for things that were negatively impacting the South Florida yachting community. Um, one of which was the train that's that impacts the the South Fork of the New River here in South Florida. You know, our, all of our major shipyards are up the river. And so these things can negatively impact us. And the only way to make sure that we get our voices heard is to is to unfortunately go through that process. And so I got to see kind of how the, the cake is baked with them this year. And, and that was a that was a real eye opening experience and something that kind of reaffirmed to me the importance of that and why I want to be at the table having those conversations because you want to make sure that your message is heard and that it's concise and that it's understood. And and the only way to do that is to get reps. And that was, that was what that was. It was, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and that association is just one of many. There are probably 15, 20 trade associations throughout South Florida. You've got, in addition to that, international associations and national associations like the U.S. Super Yacht Association. But we all try to to work in lockstep with each other to make sure that our voice is as loud as it can be. And being on the board of Young Professionals and Yachting, where we don't lobby, it, we are we are agnostic. We are not is none of our business. We just want to help people grow in their careers. I get to dabble in that and kind of see what what life will look like when I age out of of YPY. <laughs> well, you know what they say: if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> so as we shift towards your area expertise, which is marine insurance, and one of the things that I always found interesting about marine insurance is you guys are really on the up and up about all the trends that are happening in the industry. You just have to be. So can you talk about what trends you're seeing in the industry? What are some insights related to, you know, the boating industry? Certainly. And what's funny about that is the insurance industry as a whole seems to change with the tides. It's it seems like you you think you know exactly what's what's going on in the marketplace and then, you know, 24 hours later it's been turned upside down on its head. And since about 2017, which was one of the, the most catastrophic years in the history of yacht of not just yacht insurance, but but catastrophic losses for the insurance industry as a whole, we've seen such a retraction of capacity and and the appetite of the marketplace constrict to the point of can I even sell it? Is, you know, is this even something that somebody will buy? Is is it actually covering anything? It, it has gotten to the point now where we are in. We say this, it feels like every year since 2017, it is the hardest market in the history of insurance, both from a commercial perspective, but mostly from a yacht perspective. It has just gotten to the point where social inflation and a lot of the repair costs due to supply chain issues have have made it an untenable marketplace. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. These things are cyclical. And while it may feel awful now in five years, it may be the opposite. Or it could be next year. It, it really depends. Unfortunately, the puppet masters, which are the reinsurers, the insurance company's insurance company, they tend to be the ones who dictate market conditions more so than anything else. And then the ball rolls downhill. This boat show, the Fort Lauderdale show in particular, is where big announcements occur. There's no bigger venue or forum to make a splash and to create buzz 
Then the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show, there is a Mariner's Seminar here the two days prior to the show kicking off, which for attorneys in this industry, as well as insurance professionals, our boat show basically starts Sunday, even though the official one starts Wednesday. So we'll be talking with underwriters for the next 96 hours or so about you know, what's changing? Can you give me any secrets? Is, you know, what, what forms are going to be updated to help with the lithium ion batteries or what, you know, can, can you give me, what's the T? And so I can tell you that this show, there will be a couple of, I won't call them bombs being dropped, but there should be some positive, some positive movement, which I think will come to much relief of the industry as a whole. Cause what is unfortunate is our industry can negatively impact sales and sales from a brokerage standpoint for, for, for vessel owners. If you can't insure the boat and you've got a loan, then you can't buy the boat. And with insurance rates as high as they are, but the amount of people financing boats has shrunk considerably. But those that are paying cash still want to feel that if I'm going to fork out this significant sum of money, depending on the type of boat I have, I want to know that I've got coverage and that the marketplace and the conditions that we've got currently provide very restrictive options in South Florida in particular, Florida in particular, most domestic carriers still won't write here because of hurricanes. A lot of carriers won't write boats with four five, six engines. And the reasoning is, is still to be determined, but they're scared. And underwriters right now are more worried about losing their job because they wrote one bad boat than taking a chance on what could be a very profitable risk opportunity. So this week is is the week for, for big news to be announced. I, I will be launching a product during the show as well, which is pretty exciting for me as my first product in my career, hopefully not my last. But this is the show where people really really get to see what's what's happening, what's going, what's what do we have to look forward to in, in the year coming up in 2024 and beyond? So obviously, you know, we've heard some issues that are going on within the insurance world. One of the things that we've seen is that, you know, frankly, boats are almost given this eternal life. And so there's boats that are flown and that have been around for 40 years, 50 years. And it seems that a lot of that type of coverage is shrinking on the used boat market. Can you talk a little bit on on kind of that scene and what you think is going to happen? Because, I mean, there's so many old boats that are out there. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think the oldest boat I currently insure right now is a 19, I think it's 1958. And it's a fireboat. It was recently retired from the San Francisco Fire Department, and it's being converted into a, a expedition vessel, a, a passenger ferry, basically, to go sightseeing on and to do uh, burials at sea on the West Coast. And the older the boats get, you know, obviously, there's a lot of old girls out there. If you go out to San Diego or the West Coast of the United States, I mean, you've got boats that have been handed down generations, uh, you know, 1970s sailboats that you're shocked that the thing still is afloat and that it doesn't look like a sponge. It's getting tough to write those types of boats. The market is very restrictive for, for older girls unless we do some some major, major updates and refitting. But what we're really seeing is, and I, I don't mean to use this word lightly, but bit of a gentrification of the the marinas that are out there and where these boats are being kept, where that's really most pronounced is with the fleets of six-pack fishing vessels that we insure in Hawaii. Up until recently, you know, you'd have a, a 1970 post 
or an older Cabo. And now, you know, that boat's being traded in for a $6 million Viking that's brand new. And, and so you're seeing this, this evolution of these older girls finally being sunset due to either maintenance costs or, or the insurability factor. And, and it is occurring. And so these, there is kind of a turnover going on with these older vessels. Are they still insurable? Absolutely. Are there a lot of options? Absolutely not. But it really depends on the pedigree and the level of care and maintenance that has been taking place on these boats. I mean, I we did a refit, a builder's risk for a 19, she was a 1967 Fed ship that had been extended. They had extended the, uh, the transom a bit and she went through a four-year refit and was at no, no expense spared on this boat. And that boat, it was cursed, but that's a separate story. We were able to ensure that with a with a you know an A-rated domestic carrier that absolutely loved it because it's a fed ship. You know, the boat's 50, 60 years old, and that's okay because it's a fed ship. So the brand, the the pedigree of the manufacturer is a huge component, but it all boils down to what condition the boat's in. She could be a hundred years old, but if she is Bristol, that's a good right. And now you've almost got a feather in your cap going, look at, I wrote this boat that's just the coolest thing in the world. Nothing else is designed like it that still exists. And and to some underwriters, that's a real good feel good. It makes them feel tied to the to the culture and the history of our industry. Nice. So Chris, I definitely want to learn more about the product you're launching. And maybe you could tie this in with my other question. I had this friend, he's, he was at the first Marine I was at. He had a 40-foot Trojan and him and his family were out fishing and this is up north in new england and they got struck by a whale okay and uh, they obviously they got some damage and the crazy bit was is that the insurance company turns around and goes that's an act of god we don't cover that yeah and so what is that distinction how how do you guys make these products who decides what gets covered and what doesn't it's funny because that's really it really depends on the carrier and their forms. In my, you know, in my personal and professional opinion, I don't think marine life uh, striking is an act of God. That's that could be excluded for a different reason because typically any type of marine life or, or endangered species interactions are, are excluded due to litany of reasons. But um, much like they would never cover an infestation, rats, ants, squirrels, raccoons getting struck by a whale or uh, a seal jumping on your boat and sinking it, those types of scenarios aren't really contemplated. As silly as that sounds, they're not really what what the intention of the policy was. And that's something that I think a lot of people forget is what was the intention of the underwriter when he wrote this? Was he Did he know that we were going to be only operating in hurricane weather? He would have never given you hurricane coverage if he knew that 80% of the time you're operating the boat, you're operating underneath, you know, a cat five storm because you're taking turbidity tests or something like, like it's, it all boils down to circumstantial and, and case by case basis, but not covering a whale hitting you is kind of a weird one because collisions and elisions are something that is contemplated. I could see them denying coverage for damages or fines associated to the injury to the whale, but the boat that <laughs> i don't know that one's kind of funky but when it comes to to product development you always want to contemplate the pros and cons of launching and what does the the saturation of the marketplace look like for this product 
in particular, working in the recreational space, both commercial and, and yacht, we get to deal with a lot of artisans, a lot of small businesses, you know, owner operators going in doing hole cleaning and washdowns and electrical and, you know, small engine repair and, and all the various separate industry segments of, of vessel maintenance. And every shipyard has a varying degree of insurance requirements. It's an absolute nightmare. You have to be, it has to be a full-time job to know which yard requires what it feels like these days. And so in conjunction with one of our, our carriers, I had proposition that we coordinate and collaborate with a couple of the larger yards to create a uniform standard. If you guys are requiring X, then we'll put a product out that satisfies X. If you need it to also include Y, well, then we'll make sure when we launch, it includes Y. So that way, the process of getting in and out of these yards for boats to be able to turn over and yards to be more profitable and more efficient can be the bottleneck at the gate for security saying your insurance isn't accurate, can can be alleviated. It's not a foolproof plan, right? But there is a certain segment of the insurance marketplace that hates and does not want to write commercial accounts under a certain premium range because they feel that there's not enough juice for the squeeze. And so by stepping in and saying, I'll do it, I'll automate this process, I'll create a digital platform that allows us to expedite this process so that yards can be more efficient, so that contractors can be more efficient. All ships rise with the tide in that scenario. So why are we why are we creating an unnecessary block here? And so that's what I that's what we've implemented. And it's going to launch immediately after the show. Uh, we're going through the final stages of testing, but it's to help these artisan contractors who just want to make a living, and for these boat owners who just want to use their boat. So we've had a ton of talks with Eddie Dennison of the prestigious Dennison Yacht family. And one of the things that he was working on recently was doing a, a, um, a form about marine surveying in regards to electric boats. And because obviously it's kind of a new market, they still haven't really figured it out. How does it, insurance kind of play within this electric boat market that's burgeoning right now? And what issues have you guys run into? That's a... Uh... I knew this would come up eventually. Um, it is the electric boat market, the lithium ion market, everything that has to do with this hybrid propulsion and, and fully electric push, I find to be very admirable. And I think that there's a place for it. Um, diesel hybrid electric has been in, in existence since World War One, And it's very efficient. It provides a lot of pros. There are some cons. Um, I recently attended a seminar that was hosted by SNAMI regarding, you know, lithium ion batteries, the various types of chemical compositions, the pros and cons of each type, so that I could better familiarize myself with, are all lithium ion batteries the same? And the answer is no. There's almost 20 different types. And there's about eight or 10 chemical compositions that are used in a relatively consistent basis. And some of them have very, very you know, dire drawbacks. Um, I'm dealing with a claim right now for a boat fire that occurred because of a lithium ion battery that was overcharged. And unfortunately, it caused catastrophic damage. It burned the entire marina down. And that's currently going through um, litigation. And 
you know, who's, who's to blame for that? Is it the battery? Is it the, the end user not charging it properly? Is it all of the above? Is it the a power surge from the utilities provider? Who knows, right? I'm not an attorney and I'm not an expert witness, but the lithium ion battery place in this world as it stands is creating a lot of pain points. Um, surveying who is an expert on this, right? You've got your NAMS and SAM surveyors, your SAMI individuals who can speak to 99.9% of boat issues, but who is really an expert on this stuff? And it seems to be an, an evolving topic. The Lloyd's registry, Lloyd's has actually issued a memorandum about certain requirements for, for lithium batteries and and you're starting to see the various P&I clubs, which are the massive insurers of liability for cargo ships and everybody else with these car fires on cargo ships and with all these water toys, your your e-foils, your C-bobs, spontaneously combusting the, the unfortunate circumstances with the dive boat in California. You're starting to see a, a lot of scrutiny on this stuff and, and justly and, and rightly so. But it is creeping into our space where underwriters are just not wanting to cover it at all. They'd rather just exclude it until they have a better understanding. And and can you blame them when you're only collecting $20,000, $25,000 a year, but you have a $16 million claim? Is, <laughs> is that is that really a good, you know, profitable opportunity when it's a ticking time bomb in their eyes? Now, is that true? No, if these things are maintained properly, they're perfectly fine. Every one of us has a phone with a lithium ion battery in it. That's just reality. So it's it's funny to that it's still constantly beating up against the wall with these types of items, but until there's more clarity and there's some more regulation or or, or understanding as to what needs to be done to mitigate the losses, it's hard to expect an insurer or an underwriter to want to stick their neck out on a dozen or a thousand of these boats when it's, you know, the loss ratio clearly speaks for itself. Interesting. So you already gave us a sort of short story. What's like the craziest claim you've had to deal with, or the most fun or the most challenging? One of the ones that I've had that was really, really unfortunate thankfully was not my client. It was prior to me trying to work on it. It was a dock manufacturer and one of their employees, it was a workers comp claim. One of their employees was using a chainsaw on a floating barge. And I guess a rogue wake went by and he almost chopped his whole arm off. Um, that was a bad one. Chainsaw massacre right there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That one. I'm really glad I didn't have to see pictures and, and, Unfortunately, I never picked up that account, or maybe it was fortunate, but that one, uh, that was a bad one. My boat fire uh, with the whole marina burning down, that one's, that one's bad. Um, I had a, f- <laughs> it's always the guys who, who swear that they are, are so heavily qualified are the ones that end up doing the silliest things. Um, mm. I had a captain doing a delivery, and he ran into the side of a bridge allegedly the current was really strong but just straight into the side with a with a flybridge uh like a 70 or 80 foot motor yacht those are some of the interesting ones off the top of my head i most everything's usually nicks and bumps it's it's not really anything too tragic um thankfully one of the coolest rights that i've ever had though was i i used to insure a boat called shark water she was actually christened here 
at the BMR in 2016, I believe. And it was for an organ- a nonprofit organization called Fins Attached. And they did marine research and conservation and shark tagging in the Galapagos and Costa Rica and up the, the Southern Pacific. And they were used for Shark Week and National Geographic. And that was a really cool account. We're currently working with an organization called Beneath the Waves, another nonprofit, and they are doing carbon sequestration and seagrass research. They just recently did a publication in 2022 mapping the largest seabed in the world in the Bahama Shallows. And so we get to see some really neat stuff. Believe it or not, I had Four Ocean as a client in their infancy, uh, and I'm sure everybody's seen their commercials and, and talked with those guys, but they were a client of ours in the past. And that was such a fascinating and challenging, right? Trying to explain to underwriters that there is value in trash, trying to get a cargo policy to ensure collected plastic that has no value in the eyes of commerce, except once it's been processed. You know, I've got 10 million pounds. What do you... We need to have coverage for $10 million. I don't think that's going to work. Like it's, it was, there's been some really funky uh, scenarios, but we get to see a little bit of everything and ensure some very interesting characters. One of our current clients has owns the largest, uh, I believe one of the largest car collections in the world and owns multiple soccer teams. I mean, there's just, there's so many cool things that you get to see from the insurance side of things and, and perspectives that you might not otherwise be privy to. And a lot of that kind of culminates and, and shows itself at these boat shows. You you get to see all sorts of people and meet all sorts of characters. Nice. And so I just wanted to ask, because unfortunately I've been in two marinas that have had fires in them, and uh, you've clearly seen one firsthand. And the nature of that beast is it, it usually spreads like wildfire. Fiberglass loves burning. And uh, the first marina, there was... 12 boats had damage and seven were a total loss. And the next one, there was like five affected. And so in, in situations like that, can you describe some of the investigation process and what goes into that? It's, yeah, I mean, we've had, gosh, there's been, it feels like boat fires are the most common thing that occur these days. We've seen, you know, the process of that is, it starts out like any other, you know, if a house caught on fire, you've got, you've got your, you know, you got to put the fire out. You've got to make sure that everybody's safe. And then, you know, your police report, your fire reports come through. And and the process of determining the loss is, is not up to us. There's obviously a, a third party inspector that comes through, a surveyor that that is a specialist in this field. And a lot of times it's things that you would just shake your head at. Um, we had a boat fire here and at the BMR had to be about five or six years back and it was a not a floating home per se but it might as well have been like a kind of like a double decker and someone was living aboard it and they left the the grill on on the second floor of their boat and they burned the whole thing down just embers fell through or or heated the 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 fiberglass got was too close to the grill and it ignited and fiberglass is a base is basically one of the most flammable things in the world. This stuff catches so fast and it's impossible to get out. And it was something like again, it was something as silly as just not turning off the grill. We've had we there was one night in South Florida where two boats got struck by lightning within the half a mile of each other, and we have to insure both of them. But then the ones that really frustrate you are, and this is not a knock on where these boats are built. It's not a knock on 
anything other than the fact that if you've had a boat long enough and you've had enough engineers and captains on it, somebody's eventually tried to to rework or re-engineer things. It was like buying a, a used motorcycle. You have no idea what the previous owner did until you get your hands in there. And where a lot of fires come up is if a circuit breaker or something on a boat isn't working properly, the captain or the engineer, because they're trying to get out on charter or they're trying to, you know, the owner's coming, we've got an owner's trip coming up, they'll bypass otherwise, you know, very obvious safety features. And by bypassing those wirings, you create potentials for power surges or for shorts. And, and that's how fires occur. And it happens a lot of times on Italian boats because of the way that they're, they're engineered or over-engineered in some cases. And it's unfortunate because it's something that's so easily preventable. But because of the level of pressure that is put on these crew to make sure that the boat is, is operational at all times, come hell or high water, it creates opportunities for mistakes to be made or for shortcuts to be taken. And that's where, when we've got fires that occur in those types of scenarios, it's, it's really, a you know, beating your head against the wall going, why would you have thought of, to do this? Let's, you know, let's, let's take a step back and reevaluate those the fires are, are tough and, and fires are unfortunate because a lot of times these are people's investments. Sometimes it's their homes. So it's not just, this this cold calculated asset that that's disposable it's sometimes there's there's a lot of sentimental value and 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 personal involvement in it so there's certainly a, a ton of drama that's going around the world right now and frankly i i wish everyone realized that climate change was the real enemy so could you talk about how climate change is impacting the insurance world Yes, and 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 it's it is unfortunate everything that's going on, and this one is, I think, the silent killer, if you will, when it comes to major crises in this in the world we live in today, and it is impacting insurance when it comes to the state of Florida in particular. It's about as flat as it gets here. It's it's shallow. It's there's no elevation, and with climate change, we see a, an increase in frequency of catastrophic events. While this year, thankfully, we have not had any what would be considered docking uh, catastrophic events like last year's um, Hurricane Ian, we've had more frequency. There's been 24 catastrophic events in the United States this year, and the average number is eight over the last 43 years. The average is eight, and we've had 24 in the United States this year. And you look at the tsunamis that hit the South, Southeast Asia, and you look at the fires in California, and you look at the flash flooding in New York, as well as the one in a million year scenario that happened here in Fort Lauderdale back in April, and we were two feet, three feet underwater. Climate change is a real problem. And flood insurance rates have quadrupled as a result. Getting access to windstorm coverage is near impossible in the state of Florida, but these catastrophic events impact every corner of the world, everyday life. You want to buy, you know, bread from the store. Well, the cost to ship that has gone up because the insurance on the cargo truck and the cargo vessel has gone up. It, it is pervasive and it has increased exponentially in, in recent years. And all of that I think ultimately can circle back to rising sea levels, increased temperatures. We're on the hottest year in history 
across the world in areas where it's really not healthy. There are parts of the world, both in the in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East and in Africa, where they're seeing temperatures that no human being should be exposed to for long periods of time. And what's the catalyst? Where, where can we point the finger? So I'm very sensitive to the fact that that is a, a very, very real problem that we all have to be aware of. But it does impact our industry immediately. We are one of the first people to see those consequences because they result in losses and losses result in premium increases. So Chris, um, just the way you mentioned it, it sounds like lots of people are going to be getting priced out almost. Um, could you just speak about that and maybe just what you think is the future of uh, the insurance industry, specifically marine? There is, yeah, and there is a very real chance of there being more pain before there's relief. I feel that we are getting close to the precipice of this this ratings increase losses are starting to come down we're starting to see carriers start to break even and some are being profitable at this point and when carriers start to be profitable is when rates start to get relief because now they're hungry and they're going to be more competitive but there is a very real situation as it stands on the ground today that people are being priced out of insurance people are self-insuring which is you know for a house for somebody's home, that's terrifying. What, what does that because mean? If you, How do you self-insure? So, so if, if you don't have a bank involved in the transaction for your home or your boat, you're not legally required to carry insurance. You don't You don't have to. It's not a law. The only reason that you're required to carry is because the bank wants to insure their investment. So what we're seeing is people going, well, I'm not just going to light $25,000, dollars $45,000 on fire just on the one-off chance that a hurricane might blow through. I'll just insure it myself. Even if it's a $1,500 policy, sometimes people feel that the risk isn't worth or the reward isn't worth the risk. And so they go, that's $1,500 that could be better spent elsewhere. And that's a consequence of, of just inflation costs in general uh, and cost of living adjustments. But given how restrictive coverage has gotten, people are saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's not worth it. And when you start to lose entrance into the marketplace, that risk has to be spread across fewer policyholders. And the, the fewer policyholders you have, the more that those people are subject to those losses. It's, it's, a, it's a numbers game. If you've got a million people paying $1,000 versus 100,000 people, and the losses are still the same, well, guess what? Those 100,000 people are going to have to pay more because it's not spread out across as many people. It's like I said, it's a law of numbers, unfortunately. And the good news is, and at least in the commercial space, we are, I think we have hit a ceiling. We're starting to see carriers start to either expand coverage. They're not increasing their appetite. And what I mean by that is the types of risks they're willing to write. They may still not want to write, you know, welders, but they'll write, you know, the bottom painter or the capacity is growing a little bit in certain regions going, okay. We've got our hands around our losses that have occurred in this area and, you know, best practices have been instituted and we're doing a better job of, of analyzing these types of risks. So we're okay with writing them in Virginia Beach again or in, you know, Massachusetts. But it has gotten to the point where carriers are starting to undercut each other's pricing, saying, you know what, we want, we're hungry again, or we're not going to do a 10% rate increase this year. We're going to do a 2% rate increase just to keep up with inflation. So that is occurring. Now, conversely, in the yacht space, 
that is not that is not occurring. We're lucky that some carriers still exist. We're lucky that other carriers are willing to come back, albeit in very very selective scenarios. But the yacht marketplace has not has not settled yet. The dust is still very much in the air, and we need this year and I think next year to both be relatively hurricane free. Uh, I think we were very fortunate that the one major storm that hit Florida hit the most rural part of Florida where there are no real boats. So the losses that were incurred in that area of the panhandle or the armpit of the panhandle, if you will, were mostly residential. It was upland, older homes that are built to an inferior construction class. Uh, they're not built to the the ridiculous standards we have here in South Florida where everything is a concrete bunker. And so those losses, I don't think would negatively impact the yacht underwriter's perspective. Now, if we can go a second year without a hurricane, now all of a sudden people are going to go, well, the premium down there was fantastic. Why aren't we trying this again? So we're really on the fence here waiting to see how things shake out. But ultimately, and circling back to what I had said previously, the, the purse strings are held by the reinsurers. They're the ones who dictate whether it's palatable or not to pursue those markets and their and their treaties that they renew in the beginning of, of the year around February and March will de- ultimately determine what carriers are allowed to do. So as we come to our conclusion here, what advice and tips would you give someone that's trying to break into uh, the marine insurance industry? And, you know, I'll also say, don't mention mentors. honestly the best advice i could give is to genuinely be yourself and to build your network your your relationships our industry is relationship based it is not cold calling it is not going hey you know i I heard i saw that you've got this business so why don't you let me look at it The, the the way to grow in our industry is to establish yourself with your peers and to understand that it's a long game. There's, there's a long period of time that it takes to earn people's trust. And that trust is something that, as I had mentioned previously, can be further bolstered by your education, your proficiency in the product that you're trying to offer. But I would encourage any young professional who's interested in getting into the yachting industry or marine insurance in particular to reach out and find these networking groups, these associations that can help build a, a community for you to, to lean on. Because, you know, as I had mentioned before, and it's an age old adage, all ships rise at the tides and people aren't as closed off and unapproachable as you may think. People really want to see the next generation succeed. It's not about me, 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 me. So I would encourage you to find those associations, find those networking groups, and really put yourself out there. It, it, you got nothing to lose. It, it's other than an opportunity to to grow into a field that we all know is is fantastic, is a lot of fun, um, and and it should help provide you know a future career for you. And as far as mentors go always find the biggest bully in the room, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the truth? <laughs> find the person who, who is the most intimidating and find out why and break them down. Find out what makes them tick. They could be potentially your biggest advocate and, and it's nothing against them by, by calling them that. It's, it's, it's actually, in my mind, can a lot of times be a compliment. Say, look, 
this is why I approached you. You seem to be the person that keeps people on their toes. And I want to be that person next. So tell me the secret. Tell me without, you know, giving away your, your clients and, and just tell me what is your methodology. There's really cool ways to, to get creative and, and finding a mentor, but it all starts with putting yourself out there and introducing yourself and, and just making it, making a go of it. So Chris, where can people find you and read more about what you're doing and possibly get an insurance set up? I can be found. Uh, I'm, I'm a open book. I'm, I'm everywhere. Right. I, um, I honestly am the easiest to approach on social media. Um, I have a LinkedIn like most everybody else these days, but I also have an Instagram account. Uh, I'm based here in sunny South Florida, and I usually am at almost every industry event that I can be. I can be found, you know, it's, I think Coleman underscore Chris or, or Oversee underscore Chris is my Instagram handle. I, you know, like I said, LinkedIn's probably the best way from a professional standpoint. I filter those and I review those a lot quicker than I do Instagram messages, but I try to be an available resource to any and everybody that reaches out, whether it's, you know, applicable to our industry or a total stranger. It's what you put out into the world, you get back tenfold. Awesome, Chris. Well, it was great having you on the show. Yeah, Chris. Thanks for your time. Best of luck, man. Yeah. Thank you guys. I really, really enjoyed this and I'm looking forward to, to seeing you guys on the docks. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode and be sure to like, share and subscribe to ShipShape.pro.